You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Well, here we are. It's 3.05. So we'll uh, go ahead and get started, and why don't we pray? Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, Mockingbird, and we thank you for this day, and we thank you, Lord, for the Reformation. And uh, Father, that uh, we only move forward by always going back to the beginning, um, which is the cross, and we never leave that point. And so we pray, Father, that uh, through this uh, time and through uh, uh, our conversation today, Lord, that that, that the word of the cross, God, which always uh, reforms uh, your church, Lord, would be deeply embedded in our hearts. And we pray this all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, um, it is great to have you guys all here. My name's uh, Jacob Smith, and I'm the rector of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. So we're in St. George's Church. There's actually two uh, churches in the parish. Calvary's on Park Avenue and 21st. And uh, it is great to have you. And so I was thinking about, we were going to talk about what the Reformation today And I was going to title the talk, Is the Reformation Over? But as those of you who read the Mockingbird blog, you notice that uh, I noticed that First Things and like the Gospel Coalition had already taken those talks and so those titles. So we're just doing the Reformation today. And uh, as I was preparing for this talk, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I came across this amazing ad by Carl's Jr. Um, And what does it have to do with the Reformation? Well, I don't know if you know anything, but for the last 15 years, who can describe what Carl Jr. hamburger ads have all been about? Like really foxy ladies uh, eating hamburgers and like just, I mean, borderline pornographic. And uh, I mean, let's just say, call it what it was. I mean, even the Carl's Jr. salad with like that they had started with Kim Kardashian eating it, just raunchy. They made a pear salad so raunchy. And so... um, um, but what's interesting is, is that I believe Slate wrote an article on Carl's Jr., and although they've only really added a couple of fancy salads, with these ads, sales began to drop uh, in their burgers as they kind of moved forward and left the world of the flame-broiled burger and uh, just regular fries and table service and went to salads and fancy pants chicken sandwiches with jalapenos on it. They, uh, the sales began to drop. And so this uh, commercial really, I think, uh, illustrates the importance of the Reformation today. And so, and, uh, so we're going to watch this commercial, and then we're going to talk about it. So perfect. Okay. Just mind hitting the space bar. You still talk to Stacy? Yeah, finally replied to my DM. Where are you, babe? We're over here next to the barn. I'm about to pet this cat right here. Let me pet that cat. Where's the cat? Shoot the tiger. Go for Junior. Junior, I think your dad is here. What? You're back! Yes! Take that down. Put that up. That was supposed to be a fresh ingredient. And then that lady got in there and her clothes flew off. It was windy. Miss, would you please dismount that bull? Who's this? This guy? I don't know him. Shut up, Junior. Yes, sir. Hello, friend. 
You know, when I started this company, it was about one thing, pioneering a new way to food. Daring food, cutting out corners food for you to eat with your mouth. Walk with me. Keep the bowl. We're keeping the bowl. Then I passed it to the boy. He sold his wild oats as a young man who was wont to do, and well, he got a little Distracted. Yeah, things got real weird. That video was just for charity. We actually raised a lot of money. So I'm back to do what we do. What we've always done. Take a little flashback with me. It started how all great things start, with meat and fire. We pioneered the charboard. Where's my lettuce? And people in cars needed to eat, so we made the drive-through a thing. And I made a girl, made a boy. Well, we did things our own way. We brought your food straight to your table. I'm sorry. We brought all natural beef to the burger. I like this one, Daddy. And brought bacon to damn near everything. See, this is what I've been talking about. Food, not booze. Shut up, Jimmy. Yes, sir. We're pioneers of the great American burger. The great American made from scratch biscuit. Oh. Whatever great American thing we think of next. And that's a promise. Carl Hardy. Senior. But Daddy, I just bought that car. Buckle up, son. Great. Can you hit the space bar again? <laughs> so, uh, some could say that this commercial is a negative theology of glory, but uh, um, I wanted to ask you, what do you think this commercial actually has to do with the Reformation? What do you think it has to do with the Reformation? Anybody? Yeah, Alex? Going back to the basics. That's right, going back to the basics. Going back to the basics. Um, so much of what passes for Christian religion, whether it be evangelical or mainline Protestant today, to those who would consider themselves heirs of the Protestant Reformation, actually has nothing to do with the actual doctrines and the truths of the Reformation. They're sort of like Carl's Jr in this ad, you know what I mean? Um, Pew Research uh, has done a number of studies on this. Um, most Protestants, mainline Protestants, who would be the children of the Reformation, most of them do not believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. Most Protestants, uh, is that me? Most Protestants don't believe in uh, justification by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. A lot of Protestants believe that community is the number one thing when it comes to church. A lot of historic Protestants and evangelicals believe that social concerns now are the chief importance of the church and what we should be about. And the list goes on. And as a result, many are asking the question, what does the Reformation have to offer us today? Many are asking the question, is the Reformation even still relevant today at all? Is the protest still actually necessary? Let's just move on and, and get over it, you know? Let's get on about partnering with God. 
You know, there, there, there is a church here, literally, that that is their tagline, partnering with God in the renewal of all things. That is not the Reformation at all. There is, um, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And what I want to do in this little breakout session is go back to the beginnings. I want to take us back to the beginnings of the Reformation, and I want to look at and share with you, and the way we're going to do it is, and and maybe we'll all leave here um, a little more like Carl Harding Sr., and uh, as opposed to Carl Jr., and uh, because, you know, really, uh, if, if it just is about community building, if the church is really about just social concerns only, if the church is really about, you know, partnering with God, like he's up there and he needs my help, um, uh, then, yeah, the Reformation is over. Uh, indeed, Christianity is over. Um, that is the truth. Anybody can go dig a well. Let me just tell you right now. And there's a lot of organizations that do it great better than the church. But so what I want to do today is, is, and I always have three points, but I want to take a look first at a key figure uh, for uh, Lutherans and Anglicans in the Reformation. He was one of the first English martyrs. Uh, we, uh, both Lutherans and Anglicans, hold him dear, uh, Blessed Robert Barnes. And I want to talk a little bit about his life and what were the key issues he was protesting, uh, because it was far from lack of community or social reform. Uh, Second, I want to flush out scripturally why this doctrine is so important. And then the third thing we're going to talk about today here is um, we're going to talk about when this has gotten right, kind of one of the things that kind of comes out, especially in pastoral ministry and how we treat other people um, when it comes to the Reformation. Because, you know, I mean, oftentimes when you're in evangelical or Protestant circles, I mean, the kind of the... the, uh, the, um, the idea is, is that we're grouchy and that we're always angry and we're uptight. And indeed, if repression is the definition of our faith, then we have every right to be grouchy. Uh, but what we'll see is, is that really when this doctrine is understood and it pierces your heart, um, something else becomes the defining narrative of the ministry of the church. So this guy Robert Barnes, Dr. Barnes, as he was known uh, later, (laughs) not right away, he didn't come out of the womb and they were like Dr. Barnes, but anyway, Barnes was uh, born 40 miles north of Cambridge, England, in 1495. And when he was 13 years old, in 1508, he was admitted as an Augustinian friar in Cambridge. It was really interesting. I mean, you had children as young as nine in the medieval ages joining the, joining the ministry and taking the vow of celibacy. You know what I mean? When I was nine, I would have done it too. And then you're like, oh God, 14, what happened? And so anyway, but uh, um, it, it sucked. But anyway, so there, he was there. He was, uh, you know, uh, there like he was admitted into the Augustinian Friary in Cambridge. And evidently, there was a small priory in his town, but he went to the one in Cambridge because that's where the university was, and he had shown um, some talents. And so uh, there he remained for 10 years. And in 1518, he leaves Cambridge and he travels to uh, uh, Louvain, which is um, in Brussels today, but it would have been part of Holland in those days, um, and, um, and to study. And because he was regarded after a few years there in Cambridge as a budding humanist, and classicist, and some of the greatest humanists of the day were there in that part of Holland at the time, including Erasmus. There's no evidence that they had much contact, but uh, the two of them were there. And uh, interestingly enough, though, that there was a small English community who had begun to protest the heirs of the medieval church 
in that same town. And I believe that it proves that Barnes um, uh, was, was in contact with them, but his whole time in Louvain with the humanists there, there's a saying that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther eventually hatched. And, uh, uh, and, and this is, I believe, true, because for many of the early reformers, especially in England, they were all humanists before that, and they were deeply um, influenced by these ideals of humanism. And what I mean is not the group of kind of nerds who think they, they have enough information to be dangerous at Harvard and are like atheists. That's not what we mean by humanists. What we mean are, uh, these were scholars who were going back to the classics, and they were going back and reading the Bible in the original languages like Greek and Hebrew, and they were studying the works of Aristotle and Plato and Cicero and these guys. But in 1532, he's there, and he's deeply influenced by these ideas. And in 1523, excuse me, he receives his DD, his Doctorate of Divinity. And that's when they start calling him Dr. Barnes. But anyway, uh, he receives that and returns to England and is appointed as the prior of his Cambridge monastery, Augustinian monastery. Now this is very important because as a prior in a monastery, unlike a church, a prior could kind of preach and teach whatever he liked in the monastery without kind of the direct um, uh, insert of the bishop. And so he began to teach a lot of these ideas that he had learned probably from this small community in Laverne and also the ideas of humanism and going back to the basics there. And so much was his teaching regarded that actually a bishop began to sneak in and show up. Uh, this bishop became the great uh, English martyr Hugh Latimer. And, um, and uh, he was the Bishop of Worcester, and he begins attending uh, Barnes's services and lectures. Latimer would go on to say about Robert Barnes, he would say, when it comes to putting forth Christ, he alone hath no fellow. And the two of them were uh, some of the original founders and members of what many of us know and love as the White Horse Inn in Cambridge, which really brought the Reformation to the speaking, English-speaking world. Um, Latimer was burned at the stake with Bishop Ridley, many of you know, and that great saying that came out as the flames were going up, Latimer and Ridley was freaking out, and he said, you know, uh, Master Ridley, play the man, for tonight we shall light an a fire in England that shall never be extinguished. Um, this was how deep these ideas were, you know. Uh, you know, it was powerful. Well, this sort of freedom that Barnes had to just kind of say whatever he wanted, uh, he became bolder and bolder and bolder in his teachings. And uh, in some of his teachings and sermons, he begins to teach against clerical wealth, uh, which was rampant in the medieval church. Um, his Christmas sermon in 1525 concerned the wealth of bishops, and he basically compared them to the birth of their Lord in a manger in, um, in uh, Bethlehem. And he said, what's the problem here? He also began to preach against lawsuits, against um, uh, Christians suing each other. And this is ultimately what got him into big trouble. This is where, you know, wait, don't sue other Christians. This is where people's ears perked because this was one of the teachings and a big thing that um, the Anabaptists supported on the continent. And if you know anything about the Anabaptists, especially the radical Anabaptists, they're the ones who started kind of the peasant revolts on the continent. And so people started hearing Robert Barnes talk about this, like don't sue each other. And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this, this is a little intense. And, uh, and, uh, and so he began to teach this stuff, and he began to sound more and more like what was going on on the continent, and the continental reform. And at this time, there's a lot of literature being smuggled in from Holland and Germany and the teachings of the Reformation and what's going on in the German reform into England. 
And so they're being smuggled in. And Robert Barnes is really teaching this stuff in a major way. And this is not popular with a lot of the English nobility. Sir Thomas More accused uh, the, some of the early continental reformers. He was one of Henry VIII's right-hand men. He accused them. He said, they play the devil's dicers, speaking much of the spirit with no more devotion than dogs. Um, and, uh, but, but really the thing that got him into trouble was uh, the preaching against Christians suing each other. And uh, because people were afraid of what was going on on the continent would come over to England and everything would erupt. And in 1526, he's, uh, they level 25 charges against him on wrong teachings against Robert Barnes. And he's told to recant. And, in, you know, and the threat is serious. I mean, this is either the, they burned you at the stake. And uh, if, they, if you weren't that popular, they used wet wood so that you, know, you didn't burn quickly. You usually died of asphyxia. It was serious stuff. Um, and so it's not like just like, hey, man, give it up. They were like, recant, or this is the other option. And uh, so he does. And so in part of his penance, he has to spend time in a place called Fleet Prison uh, for two years. And, uh, and then he's released in 1527, and he's placed under what would be con- kind of considered house arrest in an Augustinian monastery in, um, in London. And then occasionally he's moved up to Northampton and then back. And he's allowed to have people visit him, but he's under constant watch. And um, although stuff is still coming in from the continent, the writings of the reformers and, uh, are coming in, and some of Luther's tracts are coming into England. And... Um, <clears throat> And during this time, uh, Luther, I mean, Barnes is beginning to hear stories from other Augustinians, you know, in this priory and under house arrest about what he's hearing is happening on the continent. And uh, like I said, these theological tracks, and it just sounds so exciting. And so in 1528, it's really interesting, Robert Barnes, what appears to everybody else, begins to get depression, a real depression. Later, we find out it was fake. It was all an act. And he begins to talk about despair, but instead of the despair about not being able to teach, he begins to talk about the despair of having 25 accounts against him and 25 tracts leveled against him, you know, and, and, and hurting the church in any way. He begins to talk about this deeply, so much so that they begin to give him permission to like walk along the rivers and along the Thames to kind of regain his mental health. And uh, in uh, 1528, he fakes his own death. He leaves a suicide note in his chamber, and they like go, and he's like, I've thrown myself and drowned in the river. And he takes a pair of clothes, and he like scatters them along the river Thames, and the authorities begin to dredge the river and to look for his body, which gives him a seven-day lead before everybody gives up. And nobody knows what happens to him and where he goes. But all of a sudden in 1528, in early 1529, he pops up in Wittenberg. And he's living as a guest in the home of Johann Bugenhagen. And for those of you who don't know who he was, he was the head pastor of Wittenberg and he would have been Luther's pastor. And he's resident in uh, Wittenberg during a very popular time, during the Diet of Augsburg, when the Augsburg Confession is being laid out and pitched and he soaks up all of the theology of Lutheranism. And he begins to write, and much about what he writes, he writes under the pseudonym called Antonius Anglicus, or Anthony English. And so, and and a lot of his writing parallels the Augsburg Confession, and you can see a lot of it, um, especially his tracts where he would write theses. 
And that's how a lot of people wrote in those days. They would like lay out theses, theses points, and you would debate them. But a lot of these you see really influenced the Anglican Confession, which is in the back of the American Book of Common Prayer. But for centuries, we all had to sign it before we were uh, ordained. But the 39 Articles, huge influence in it. But there he is, and in 1531, he's there in Wittenberg, and he writes what's called the Supplication to King Henry. King Henry VIII. And this is where he makes his pitch, and he says, listen, Henry, I'm over here in Wittenberg, but I want you to know that I have always been a loyal subject to the crown. See, in Tudor England, you had two loyalties. You were loyal to God, and you were loyal to your king, because in many ways they were seen as, you know, very similar. Now, we can look back from a 21st, perspective, 21st century perspective and critique it, but this is just the way it was. And so he says, I've been loyal to you. And he writes this track where he refutes the 25 items, and he lays out 10 doctrinal pieces on justification at the same time. And everybody wonders what's going to happen, and he's like, I'm probably going to hang out in Wittenberg the rest of my life. This is where we're going. And all of a sudden, he receives a letter from England. And everybody's expecting it to say, basically, if you ever come back to England, you're going to be arrested and killed. You know, um, but he receives a letter, and in it, they break the seal, and it says, you have been appointed ambassador uh, from England to uh, these German princes in the Holy Roman Empire. Now, why? Well, because everybody knew that Henry VIII had a problem with his wives. And uh, his first wife was Catherine of Aragon, who was related, I believe she was the aunt of Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor at the time. And so nobody was just going to give Henry VIII an annulment to divorce his wife. Everybody, what a lot of people don't know is he had to receive a special dispensation to marry her in the first place. Because see, King Henry VIII was the second in line. His older brother Arthur was originally married to Catherine of Aragon. And then he, she dies, or he dies, and then Henry VIII takes the place. And so, and he marries her, and he had to receive a special dispensation to marry her in the first place, and, uh, and then he needs a special dispensation to divorce her, and that isn't going to happen. And, um, uh, and, and the real issue there was, is on one level, I mean, despite, he's really worried, you know, because despite six pregnancies, she has one child, and that's Mary, and he needs a male heir to hold on to his throne. And so he needs a pope. And so he begins to write these letters to the German princes because he knows that it'll get to Luther. And he talks about how, you know, listen, we've got to stand on Leviticus. We've got to stand on Leviticus, stand on the word of God. And people are like, whoa, is Henry, like, is he getting into, like, Scripture alone? And, uh, you know, this is amazing. Maybe he's, like, getting into the word of God, sola scriptura, trumping the pope. And uh, actually the Schmalkaldic League, which were a group of Protestant princes, German princes, they're like, let's talk to it and let's bring, the, he would be a very powerful ally, Henry VIII. Let's see if we can get him into the league. And, uh, you know, and so everyone uh, in, in this subscribed to the Augsburg Confession. And, uh, um, and anyway, they begin to speak at specifically two men, Philip, Prince Philip of Hesse and uh, John Friedrich of Saxony. They speak to Luther about it and they're like, we've got to get Henry VIII on board. And what you don't know is that Henry VIII and Luther had a real spat, a theological spat. And... Uh, um, Henry wrote a letter, uh, an, a paper against Luther and his teachings, um, trying because he wanted the title the defender of the faith. And it was basically like a C-plus paper at best. And Luther just blasts him. And, um, and so, but they're like, we got to get him on board. And uh, Luther says, no, we're not signing off on the divorce. This has nothing to do with anything theological. And so uh, 
1531, as the ambassador from England to the Schmalkald League, Barnes goes back to England and delivers the news to Henry, which uh, doesn't go over very well at all. And at this point, uh, Barnes is immediately sent back from England, and Henry says, I need a different answer. And so he summoned back, and, um, and uh, there he goes, and he travels all over Northern Europe. He goes to Denmark and tries to petition King Christian III and to develop a relationship with England. And uh, there are months of back and forth and wrangling. And uh, at this time, though, Henry's kind of being, becoming disappointed with these Protestant princes. And, uh, and so in 1539, he says, I don't need them. I don't need them at all. What I need is just my own church. And so in 1539, uh, he, along with Parliament, passed what's called the Act of Six Articles. And uh, this was basically um, everything slightly evangelical um, is out the door. And we are going back to, we're going to a new church, and it's basically the Roman church with the king as the head. And uh, this is rejected by all the, the Schmalkaldic League and all the, the, the uh, northern princes. And, uh, and uh, uh, Protestant bishops and clergy are resigning and are being smuggled out of, uh, out of England because it is dangerous. And uh, Barnes goes back to try and broker another deal. And uh, this is during uh, uh, um, the spring of 1540 he goes back. And uh, it's during Lent. Um, and... Uh, and uh, um, Robert Barnes is invited to be a Lenten preacher. And, uh, and, uh, and so he goes and he's scheduled to preach on the first Sunday of Lent in a place called King's Cross. That's the outdoor pulpit of St. Paul's Cathedral. And uh, so he's there and, uh, um, and, he goes, um, and he goes there and uh, he's supposed to be the first one to preach and he's ready to go. And instead, the archbishop, his name was Archbishop Gardner, uh, who was... Uh, who was uh, uh, they called him in those days and still today, a papist, but he goes and he preaches that Sunday. He says, Barnes, you're not preaching today. I am. And he preaches and he takes these texts and he preaches against justification by faith alone. And, uh, and he just lays it down. And it's like more of a, it's not less of a sermon and more of a lecture directed directly to Robert Barnes. And so <clears throat> Robert Barnes, they say, listen, sorry about that. You can preach the third Sunday of Lent. And so Robert Barnes, that third Sunday, and I don't know if you've ever been um, in a liturgical church, but we have different readings for each Sunday. Well, he goes and he ignores those readings for the day and goes back to the first Sunday of Lent and preaches on those texts, justification. And as he's preaching those texts, he's directing it right at the archbishop. He takes his gloves off and he throws them out of the pulpit, like almost like this is it. It is on this doctrine that we're going to fall. Like this is it. And everything else can be gravy, but on the doctrine of justification, uh, this uh, cannot be. And it's directed directly at Gardner, who is an archbishop. And uh, this causes a huge haggle in which Henry VIII summons them both in. But the content of his sermon is powerful. And one of the words, part of the sermon goes like this. In Holy Scripture, Christ is revealed as nothing but a Savior a redeemer, a purifier, a perfect peacemaker between God and man, not a lawgiver. That was the teaching of the medieval church, that Christ was the new Moses, that Christ was the new lawgiver. And so he specifically uses these words against Archbishop Garner, not a new lawgiver. The faith which we have in Christ Jesus and his precious blood are alone and sufficient in justifying us before God without the help of any works. No partnership. 
he is arrested and July 30th of that same year, martyred. And as I said, uh, many of his writings, including what was known as the Supplications, uh, inspired the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, The theme, one of the themes of this great sermon, I believe, came from Romans 3, which sums up the principal doctrine of the Reformation, that we are justified by faith alone, because of Christ alone. It says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is my first point. That is the heart of what we believe and confess. That is the heart of the Protestant Reformation then, and it is the heart of the Protestant Reformation today. It is the Carl Sr., and everything else is Carl's Jr., a sinner condemned by the law, sentenced to death and damnation by God's own law, is justified and declared righteous by the forensic act of God's word. We're declared righteous by faith, which is trusting in Jesus Christ and his atoning blood shed on the cross apart from anything we will ever do. And that is the truth. And that truth, let me just tell you, it isn't Protestantism, it isn't Lutheranism, it isn't Anglicanism, it is Christianity. It is Christianity. Somebody once called me um, a couple of years ago and they were like, Jake, so you're at Calvary St. George's. How are we going to renew Anglicanism in North America? And I was like, I could give a rip. You know, I mean, Anglicanism is a nice place to worship. But I mean, the end of the day, it is about the gospel. It is about the gospel and the proclamation of this message because this is Christianity. To quote Barnes again, he is blessed whom God imputes justification without any works and without all manner of observances. And while this is the main thing, it is so often neglected. This is the story of Christianity, actually. Our senile Eustace Epicator story, the story of clamping down on justification. It just didn't begin at the right, like everything was great, and then the Reformation came. I mean, the moment St. Paul preached, I mean, you got 1 Corinthians, you got 2 Corinthians, you got the super apostles there that are like, yeah, 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 justification, but let's all do some word of faith stuff and some miracles, you know what I mean? And he's like, this is super apostolism. And then you have Galatians, and they're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is awesome, but if you really want to be a Christian, you have got to be like, you've got to follow the law of Moses, the Judaizers. So you have Paul's powerful message going out, which is Jesus' message, and which is the message of the prophets all the way back to Genesis. This isn't new. This is what it's always been. This is our story. We like to clamp down on it. And the same thing goes with Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine discovers this, like starts preaching this. Ah, man, but wait, that doesn't sound fair. You know what I mean? We got to do something. And then they land the plane on something even worse, semi-Pelagianism, which gives you enough of the gospel to completely inoculate you from it. You know? And then the same true is true with the story of Lutheranism and Anglicanism. I mean, you know, you, the, the great gospel goes forth, and immediately pietists begin to clamp down on it. We've got to do something. You know, in England, it's like the Puritans. We've got to clamp down on this. We've got to do something. I mean, it's cruel. It's our natural fallback religion. It's every other religion that God wants us better or God is some sort of passive agent, helpless without you. We love self-improvement. We just can't resist it. I mean, the analogy I have for it is, is 
the way the Laps in northern Finland protect their sheep. Have you heard of this? The Laps, they carry these huge knives around with them and they're really impressive. If you go to Finland, that's like one of the things you have to buy is one of these huge Lap knives. Well, they dip them in reindeer blood and they make these blood sickles and they like stick them out all around the reindeer bin so that the reindeer can freely graze. And when the wolves come, the wolves will see the deer, but then the reindeer, but then they'll smell the blood on these blood sickles and begin to lick the, the uh, knives. And they begin to lick and the blood on the knife begins to melt. But before the wolf knows, he starts to lap more like furiously and uh, he'll nick himself. And he'll begin to like just enjoy the blood and he winds up choking on his own blood. This is what every other religion actually is. Your self-help project, that's exactly what it is, and it kills you. That's self-improvement. I mean, just laid out, I'm sorry. <laughs> Merry Christmas, anyway. But, uh, but this actually is what makes justification, that it's all done for you because of the work of another nonsensical, and ultimately offensive. This is why, this is what St. Paul means when he talks about the renewing of your mind, not like new things you can do for God, but the fact that you don't have to do anything for him. Your self-improvement project is over. This is why for many folks, justification makes no sense. And indeed, it's offensive to the helpful person. It's offensive to the older brother. Why would God give us a law if he didn't intend for us to keep it? Sadly, I mean, the great Orthodox hero Justin Martyr wrote in his first apology, we have learned from the prophets that punishment rebukes and good rewards are rendered according to merit of each man's action. Unless human beings have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they're not accountable for their action, no matter what kind they are. For human beings would not be worthy of reward or praise if they of themselves did not choose good. Ugh. This is my second point. This is where the world is. This is where much of the church is. It's not Christianity. It's not. And it's why the Reformation is still for today. Inside and outside of the church once heard a missiologist talk about how the Reformation actually slowed down missions. And I like stood up and I was like, are you kidding? Everybody in their town had to be converted. You know what I mean? I mean, this country needs to be converted seriously to the gospel. Now, when we need to work upwards towards God, then what happens is, and when we make sin a choice, then we are consumed by avoiding evil. And we begin to talk about sin in terms of sins. And if something bad is happening, then that's the sign that like God might be far from me as opposed to actually close. Failing to realize that our condition sin is what causes us to sin. This is the problem, our condition. And the law cannot work on us or work for us in that regard. For the law exposes that every part of us is totally out of whack that our moral compasses have never pointed north. In thought, word, and deed as we pray, by what we have done, and your problem is, is by what has been left undone. The law condemns, and the law reveals our need for the gospel. 
I once heard a very powerful analogy about how the law worked um, from a classmate of mine, and he compared it to a poker game. And uh, it really relates well to me because I am horrible at poker. I once played in a, a poker match here. When I first moved to New York, I wanted to impress these guys. And so I, and I was like, well, what's the buy-in? And I was like used to $10 like buy-ins or something like that, penny any poker. And the guy was like a thousand bucks. And I was like, cool. <laughs> and then I told my wife later and uh, oh, she was livid. But anyway, I mean, and then I'm in this poker game the whole time and I'm with guys that, you know, there are like these guys that they go on golf trips and they're really good. Their whole vacation is working on their golf game. These guys, like their whole thing was working on their poker game. And I got creamed. I got creamed. I mean, I would play with a pair of twos, you know, and like, okay, I'm going to win the hand back. I'd play with a two and a three. And, uh, and the problem is, is that I was bluffing and I thought I was really clever at my bluff sometimes. And the, but the law exposes every time that all I had was a two of diamonds and a three of clubs and maybe a seven. And so, and I was working a whole time on a straight. And, uh, you know, this is what the law does. It, it exposes how our hands can't win a dang thing. Sure, you may have an ace every once in a while, but it's meaningless up against a royal flush. But the gospel says, despite your crappy hand, the royal flush is already yours. The royal flush is yours. And this is my third point. Religion, our self-justification projects, the boasting and the bluffings, they will all be revealed. And in fact, the only way to keep the law is faith. Because then it is imputed to you. Trusting in Christ, he turns all of our hands into winners. He's the one who justifies sinners. And he declares us all righteous in his sight. And our works, well, as the earlier presentation was said, uh, they are for now our neighbor. Let me conclude with this. St. Paul says, He is blessed whom God imputes justification without any works, and with all, without all manner of observances. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't get to go to that presentation, uh, listen to Scott Keith's, because he'll answer, well, what now? Because that's probably what's going through some of, your, some of your heads. What now? Listen to that, and he'll remind you, nothing. Nothing. This is it. But he is blessed whom God imputes justification without any works, and without any manner of observances. Because we can't do it. And when we realize that we have been given the royal flush anyway, what this does is that this might actually, for a moment, engender compassion within you for other people. It completely ends the us against them game. Because we all realize we're them. In your church, it will stop the conversation of how do we get those people into our church? You know, as if they're different. And just said, but by the grace of God, go any of us. Come see a man who told me everything about myself. David Zoll uh, wrote an article in Mockingbird a couple of years back, 2012, about a talk given by psychologist David DeStenen, The Science of Compassion. 
And the science is actually backed up um, by this profound idea found in Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 47. He who has been forgiven little loves little, and he who has been forgiven much loves much. This is it. When the gospel hits your heart, what actually happens is the fruit of compassion is birthed. This is the money quote from Dave Zoll's article. Uh, The distress we see someone experiencing, the compassion we feel for them, isn't determined by the objective facts on the ground. It's determined by who's looking. It's not the severity or the objective facts of a disaster that motivate us to feel compassion and to help. It's whether or not we see ourselves in the victims. That, ultimately, is the heart of the Reformation today. It's still what makes it the heart of the Reformation today. It's the beginnings of our faith that we have and always will be justified apart from works of the law. Amen.